0: Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, May 15th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Some companies are trying to polish the look of their quarterly earnings by pinning a C at the end of EBITDA. And the governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, spells out the BOE's approach to the pandemic. But first, a coronavirus vaccine is central to the global effort to restart economies. The FT's coronavirus correspondent, David Crowe, will explain why nationalism might slow the distribution of the treatment. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Earlier this week, the chief executive of the French vaccine maker, Sanofi, said the U.S. should get the first doses of two coronavirus vaccines it's developing since the country bankrolled the research. French politicians were outraged. President Emmanuel Macron responded by saying that any vaccine against COVID-19 should be treated as a public good for the world and that it should not be subject to the laws of the market. The Sanofi chief, Paul Hudson, later walked back his comments. He said he was deeply sorry for sparking controversy in France. But the dispute revealed the tension that's building in the high-stakes race for a vaccine. David Crowe, our U.S. coronavirus correspondent, has more.
1: Well, I think that uh, the race to find a global vaccine is sort of descending into a kind of nationalistic Cold War style battle, rather than this being seen as a vaccine for the world and the sort of global health. I think that increasingly issues of national security and economic primacy and so on are coming to the fore. And that is being demonstrated in how the various countries that have the capabilities to produce a vaccine have started to to act, I suppose.
0: So David, you've got the U.S. and you've got China. Both are pouring huge resources into trying to develop a vaccine. Meanwhile, the European Union has been pushing for a multilateral approach. What's the rationale here?
1: Well, the rationale for a multilateral approach is pretty clear. It is that this is a global pandemic, right? It doesn't do much good to just immunise one country or continent. And so you could, in theory, find a vaccine in the US and give it only to Americans but are you going to keep the american border shut indefinitely well that is not going to spark the kind of economic recovery that donald trump and others are looking for so the case for multilateral and multilateral approach is quite clear then there's this kind of nationalistic approach that says maybe if i come up with a vaccine first if america comes up with the vaccine first let's say We get to reopen our economy first. So we kind of steal a march on our geopolitical rivals economically. And then we get to use that vaccine as a geopolitical tool for influence, for reputation. We could be kind of greeted in the world in places where America is not like as heroes if we then donate this vaccine to poorer countries and so on. And China is looking at it from this angle too. Could China restart its economy more quickly? Could it get leverage by being the one that ends up donating a vaccine to Africa and so on, thus diminishing the influence of the US?
0: Yeah, but you know, you said something really interesting before we started recording that a a nationalist approach from some perspectives, or at least an approach where, you know, countries are working in silos, isn't the worst thing after all. Uh, Why is that?
1: So I think in its sort of boldest form, a multilateral approach would almost involve the the world putting, well, kind of all of its eggs in one basket, right? You sort of, you you would end up probably with more cooperation, um, fewer candidates. And for that reason, if those few candidates end up failing, then it probably sets the process back. Now, take the nationalistic approach where everybody wants their own vaccine Um, And China has five candidates and the US has five candidates and so on. Then you're getting, you know, many more candidates and perhaps with this kind of geopolitical bent to this kind of nationalistic pressure to get across the finish line, perhaps a greater chance of finding something sooner that works Now, the big caveat there is you then end up with all those problems of who gets it? Is it used for the wrong reasons? So it's got potential clinical benefits, but then you still end up with the big public health questions at the end.
0: So it sounds like national competition could spur innovation, but it's only good to a certain degree if it's being driven by protectionist motives. Is, Is that right? Exactly. companies have always sought to present their financial results in a flattering light. The term EBITDA probably rings a bell. EBITDA comes up when companies report their quarterly earnings, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Now, some companies are going a step further, inventing a new metric they're calling ebitdac earnings before those essential costs, and coronavirus. That's the C. Our markets reporter, Niku Azgari has more.
2: This started as a joke, to be honest. There is a picture circulating on Twitter of a mug, which has EBITDAQ written on it. And some analysts and investors were joking, you know, some companies are obviously distressed in this current crisis. What if they start adding on profits that would have happened had coronavirus not happened? And now it's evolved to become a reality, as we've seen in these earnings and bond offerings.
0: Okay, so first of all, I had no idea this is how this came about. And second of all, this seems like the ultimate caveat. Picture our earnings without coronavirus or picture a world without coronavirus is a huge hypothetical that's kind of hard to wrap your head around. How do analysts feel about this?
2: Analysts that I've spoken to feel much the same as you, to be honest. They think it's not really a fair representation of how the company's doing at the moment, given that these aren't real profits. If you're adding back profits that would have happened if coronavirus hadn't happened, that's great. But coronavirus has happened and is still happening.
0: How many companies have you come across that are adjusting their financial reporting in this way to take into account profits lost because of the lockdown?
2: Well, so far, we've spotted two examples. The first is Schenk Process, a German manufacturer owned by private equity giant Blackstone, which had in its first quarter results all of the usual financials and a little nugget at the bottom of EBITDAQ. And the company added back about 5 million euros of profits that it said it would have made had the virus not happened. And the second example was in the bond market, a company called the Azet Company, which is a Chicago-based manufacturer, and it raised $325 million of junk bonds last week and included a term that would allow it to add back lost earnings as a result of COVID-19 in the future.
0: No, I can't imagine this is likely to become an official accounting metric, but in terms of companies including it in earnings, do you think it'll catch on?
2: I think where one company leads, others may follow, to be honest. And the investors that I spoke to said you should approach this with caution if it starts to crop up more and more in financial results or bond offerings, etc. Especially the main concern is how much flexibility is permitted in this new calculation. Who's to say that the profits that you're adding back aren't just lost because of coronavirus if your business was already doing quite badly before?
0: And the governor of the Bank of England says the central bank isn't currently looking at sending interest rates below zero. Andrew Bailey spoke to our own Chris Giles at the FT's Global Boardroom online conference yesterday. He said negative interest rates would create major issues with the banking sector. Plus, the BOE governor said that going below zero would cause big problems when it comes to managing market reactions. Mr Bailey, who only started the job in mid-March, defended the central bank's rapid expansion of quantitative easing. He said it was necessary to keep financial markets calm and keep inflation on track. He also accepted that the purchase of government debt was effectively financing 10 Downing Street's fiscal measures, saying the government was smoothing the profile of government borrowing. But I have no
1: question in my mind that what we're doing is the right thing to do from the point of view of, of all our objectives, including in, a, in a, frankly the economy and being able to smooth a huge shock, for which it was essential that government stepped in.
0: But he added that central banks will have to think hard about how to manage their much bigger balance sheets once the crisis is over. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Amy Keene, Fiona Simon, and me, Mark Filippino. Our editor is Amelia Mahasik, and we had help from Gavin Kalman and Michael Bruning. Our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit.
0: From a local business to a global corporation.